Let's try this. You're listening to Almost Heretical. Coming to you from a shed in Bend, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast. The point of this literature is so far from the way that people have wanted to use it as essentially a justification for religious manifest destiny that it has nothing to do with that. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. So, Tim, there is kind of a hot topic right now around divine violence. And I want to get into this today. I I mean, I grew up with um, reading the Old Testament and I mean, I still read it, but I grew up reading the Old Testament and believing that I had to, if God wiped people out or killed people through his people, the Israelites, that I had to be okay with that. And that's just who God was. And that's what, yeah, sometimes God does that. Sometimes he gets really mad and he just does that or sometimes for no reason at all he might just kind of lash out or want his people to lash out and they have to go along with it and that's just that's just what they have to do i'm assuming you kind of used to believe the same sort of thing yeah i mean i think there's always been this uh this tension in the world that that i've been in between Old Testament God and New Testament lovey-dovey Jesus. And we read the Old Testament and God just seems angry and uh, and wrathful, uh, that Christian-y word. And then Jesus to us is supposedly, you know, kind of the all-loving, all-grace, all-kindness, uh, everybody's best friend, Jesus. So it creates this dichotomy. And I mean, some people have gone so far throughout church history as to almost want to throw out the Old Testament. But uh, I think on top of that, and and we won't get into the deep end of kind of atonement theology here, but on top of that is the framework for atonement that we, both you and I, Nate, have, have grown up with, is that essentially, and this is a bit of a caricature, but I think it's pretty accurate, people were really bad, we're all really bad, so we all deserve a really bad punishment. And God was going to give us that really bad punishment, but Jesus stepped in the way. God gave Jesus the really bad punishment instead of us. And therefore, we can be really thankful for that, uh, that we didn't get the punishment we deserve. And now we get to claim whatever Jesus gets to claim. Uh, We get to claim that for ourselves. And so in the end... Um, I actually think some of the dichotomy in, in my theology between Old Testament and New Testament is actually, it started with our theology of atonement. Because it basically was the God of anger and wrath and divine justice, retribution. It was that God versus me, and Jesus stepped in the way. Took and the so bullet. It, yeah, and so it ends up being essentially... Oh, that was, you know, Jesus' father, that that God of the Old Testament, is really the problem for me. At least that's that's how it's painted. Well, because that continues on, right? And then you get to what I would call a misreading of Revelation, where Jesus isn't that lovey-dovey guy anymore, and he comes back with a sword, and he's going he's gonna to kind of turn back into his father and, and kind of wipe out all the, all the bad people. Tim's eating French fries. I'll cut that out. Don't worry. Eat your fries. Keep it in. You done? Good? Cold French fries, too. Cold, soggy French fries. He loves them. 
Yeah, so I think this episode is just going to be kind of a jumping off point for us in terms of talking about violence. But really, I mean, we've said before that we want to spend a lot of time dealing with issues of power and what Jesus and the gospel and the entire story of the, the scriptures has to say to, to power and how we Jesus followers ought to uh, steward our own power. And really, I think violence plays right into that because violence in, in one sense is is a person, or when we talk about divine violence, a divine being using his power not only to take a sort of mental or spiritual dominion over another person, but to, to literally physically dominate another person's life or another being's life. So I think it, it, at the end of this uh, discussion is really uh, a view of, of what we think God is is in relationship to people and what we think we are to be in relationship to other people or what the dynamic of of power and control and dominion is to be. And so in that sense, violence is just, uh, you know, it's kind of like the easiest case study. And we don't want to stop at violence. I think there's a whole bunch of other case studies. We'll get into slavery and gender dynamics and all that sort of stuff later on. But one of the easiest hot button issues in Man, there's just been a slew of Christian books and scholarship in the last few years coming out is trying to deal with the conquest of Canaan in the Old Testament because it seems essentially like the the biggest issue if we're going to try to have a picture of God as loving and good and gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, then then what do we do with what seems like his decree to wipe out an entire people group? Can I do it? This is the story where God essentially tells the Israelites, hey, there's this amazing land. It's flowing with milk and honey. And this land should be yours because you are my people and I am God. So you should go and take that land. But the problem is there's people living there. So what needs to happen to those people is not just that they leave the land, but that they get wiped out, killed. Man, woman, child, everyone dies. Don't leave anyone alive. This is God talking. It's me talking, (laughs) saying what God, (laughs) if you thought that was God, that was actually me. But wipe them all out, kill them to the last baby, kill them all, and you go take that land. And that's your land. And that's the story. And that we're supposed to say that is a good God and we worship him because he's good. And here in America, as part of our church tradition and the part of the world that we're coming from, we all have to own and take responsibility for the fact that this story, this biblical story was used as an essentially an archetype to justify manifest destiny the, the Western movement across North America taking, pillaging, and then not only wiping out the natives, but also bringing an entire slave group of people from Africa 
to help colonize this country. These texts of of God calling Israel to go into a new promised land and wipe out all those that were there, these texts were some of the foundational uh, support texts for those events. And even in more recent years, I mean, even just a couple years ago when I was in San Francisco, a church was trying to plant a new church in San Francisco, and they had the nerve to put out this uh, this video to get everybody hyped on their church plant. It was in the middle of uh, one of the worst gentrification eras in U.S. history in, in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And they, they did this high-production church planting video quoting two texts that were both from this, the time of the Canaanite conquest that were essentially references to, to God giving Israel the land as their calling passages justifying them wanting to come into San Francisco and plant a church. I heard a friend last year use the conquest of Canaan. So we, we started talking about war and, and uh, America's role and involvement in that overseas and, and fighting other countries' battles and, and, and different things. And uh, I heard them use the conquest of Canaan as an example for how we, we do need to actually go and, and uh, kind of kill the bad guys overseas because sometimes God actually tells us to do that. That gets used for a lot of stuff and a lot of terrible stuff. I mean, this is just in the last couple hundred years uh, with America and things that we're talking about, but I, I can only imagine that this has been used over the course of history to do some pretty egregious things in the name of God. So we'll get into here in a second, but in short, we're just going to say that's all crazy BS. And in the end, those views, those uses of the Bible are manipulation, and they are coming from a complete misunderstanding or intentional uh, misusage, uh, but misrepresentation of what this story is even trying to say. So let's get into it. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Uh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so first, I should probably summarize the fall. In 
Yeah, so where we started this uh, this little deep dive into some of the weirder Old Testament stuff is saying that there are major pieces of the Israelite worldview that are foreign to us. And part of what we're doing is trying to find all the breadcrumbs and pay attention to them, see them, follow the trail, and start to piece together sort of a makeshift reenactment of that worldview and then use that as our lens to to make sense of some of these passages that either we just haven't been able to make sense of before or even worse we we think we know what they've meant and they mean something entirely different and so this looking at the conquest of canaan is one of the first examples where we're going to be able to do that so i've said a couple times now that genesis 6 1 through 4 is an example of one of these passages that we've just all collectively agreed to pretend isn't there. And we're actually going to do the opposite. We're going to keep coming back to it. It's the passage where apparently these divine sons of God, these Elohim, who were gods in the divine council of Yahweh, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and so they came and took them as wives. And then it says in verse 4, the Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So we talked about, gave an overview that uh, this is clearly here indicating that the the purpose of the flood, because what follows immediately after this is uh, the warning of the flood. The purpose of the flood was to, in part at least, in large part, eradicate these semi-divine beings that were giants, apparently, from the earth. And we had talked about how uh, a huge part of the the fall was this fallout between humans, between Eve and her seed, and the Elohim race of divine beings that were supposed to be working together, ended up at war with one another, and that... a large part of what this war state meant was there would be this now a new necessity for reproduction. And so we reframed some of the curses in Genesis 3 on Adam and Eve in terms of understanding that it was now up to them to reproduce essentially their own help, their own partnership here on earth. And one early piece of that is that one of the ways that these divine beings, these Elohim, these sons of God, decided to engage in this war, which just a couple chapters earlier we were told, this is now the state. These these two races of beings are at war with one another. Was this essentially through sexual warfare to insert their bloodline into humanity? And so what you see here in Genesis 6 is exactly that. You have, before the flood, these divine beings coming down and mating with people, and creating semi-divine beings. We looked last time, too, at passages in First Peter and Jude that are referencing this event. But we talked about also how the, the point of the flood was to wipe these beings out. But right here is one of the most important verses in Genesis 6-4, where it says, The giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So the text doesn't give an explanation, but the point is very clear that the flood somehow, in some way, didn't work. And there are different theories to why that is, and maybe one day, you know, I'll get into one of those podcasts of my own theory on that. But the point is, these giants are on Earth, 
these giants are an affront to literally all of the cosmic creation. They're breaching what it meant for the Elohim divine beings, what their role was, and they're essentially a, an act of war on humanity. Fast forward a little bit, and we end up getting to the calling of Abraham, the creation of, of the small people of Israel. That people ends up in Egypt for 400 years. God brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And then they're in the wilderness, and God's trying to get them to Canaan, which is the land that he originally promised to Abram. And there's a scene in Numbers, which all of you are probably familiar with, where the Israelites send spies into the land. So what they're doing, they're still not in Canaan. They're in the desert. And they send some uh, scouts, essentially, to go into the land and then come back and report what they see. Oh, I never connected this part. So look at Numbers 13. They come back. This starts in verse 25. It says, At the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron. They brought back word. Verse 27, And they told him, We came to the land to which he sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, hold on to that in your head for a couple seconds. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Now, I know as, as I read those, it's just a bunch of random names of random people, but it ends up being important. We'll come back to it. Verse 30, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, or giants, in parentheses, they are the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. And if you remember, it's, it's this event right here, this decision. So these guys go into the land. Apparently, uh, they don't just see big people. It, it seems that they actually are big. But there's a, there's a theological framework for these big people that uh, these guys, these scouts, believed they're not only large, they're also semi-divine, kind of like the the Greek Titans, sort of like Hercules, they're, they're these semi-divine warrior figures, the heroes they were called, remember in, in Genesis 6-4, the mighty men of old. And so they come back and they say, there, there's no way we can, we can go conquer this place. And it's actually the last place we would ever want to go conquer. And it's this event right here that God deems an act of faithlessness or a kind of theological cowardice, essentially, that gets Israel the punishment where they're banished to stay another 40 years in the desert until all of the adults die off, all of the adults who weren't brave enough to go tackle these giants, till all of them are dead, and then the next generation is, is given a chance to go in. But right here, 
before we get to the time where they actually make it to Canaan, we just need to stop and point out that the idea, the, the main point of, of these texts and numbers is to say that the people living in the land where they're supposed to go live, they're supposed to go find their own inhabitants, the people living there are semi-divine giants. They are the Nephilim. Yeah, and that's the piece I never connected. Like it actually says giants, Nephilim there, talks about the people being, I mean, I remember seeing the, singing the song in like Sunday school. Like, I can't remember. They, some saw, some saw giants great and tall, some saw something in the fall. Oh, they knew God was <laughs> over all. Ten were bad and two were good. Yeah, I just never connected. Like there's actually, it seems pretty simple. Like Nephilim, Nephilim. It's a straight line. Yeah, I mean, look at verse 32 again, uh, number 13. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. All the people. And I'd point out earlier, they had referenced in the first section, the sons of Enoch. And then later here in verse 33, it literally says that the sons of Enoch are all derived from the line of Nephilim. Hmm. So if the point earlier with the flood was in an attempt, at least in the way the Israelites were making theological sense of this, was an attempt to wipe out uh, what apparently was, was the great threat to creation, to humanity, this invading line of divine beings. Uh, and it didn't work. And now many hundreds of years later, the Israelites are finally getting ready to come into this new homeland of Canaan. And they see there an entire people group, actually multiple, uh, multiple people groups, where it names the Jebusites and the Amorites. Multiple people groups who are, at, if not entirely, at least largely genetic inheritance of the giants. And in some sense, the theological point being made here in the literature is essentially to group them all together and say all of these people, maybe not every individual, but as a whole, all of the people we're seeing here are giants. This is a land that is by and by fully inhabited by semi-divine beings who God has already deemed the greatest threat to humanity. And in one sense, it makes a whole lot more clear why there's this refusal to go invade and what this sort of lack of bravery on Israel's part is. And more importantly, for our study at least, it starts to show, and we'll get into it more here in a second, what the point of the conquest of Canaan was in the first place. It was, as we said, the, the flood was, was not plan A. It was a backup plan to deal with what had gone on. And that plan didn't even work entirely. And so this is yet another backup plan of a backup plan to get one of the necessary goals accomplished, which is to get these literally invaders, alien <laughs> invaders from, a, from the heavens, essentially, outside of the human race. And Israel is God's chosen people to help participate in this cosmic warfare project to go in and do that work. Wow, yeah, this seems totally different when you start thinking about 
the the god that we painted, the picture of God that we painted, that I painted earlier on, this god that was just bloodthirsty, basically his kids were the greatest, so he wanted his kids to have the land, and it didn't matter if these other humans who who were already living in the land were there, they needed to not just leave, but be like be be wiped out and killed, which just seems has always seemed a little bit uh, over the top. I mean, this is God we're talking about. Couldn't he have just like ushered them out of the land? Or uh, I think even uh, Greg Boyd, who's done a lot of work with uh, a couple books recently, and I think 10 years of work talking about violence in the Old Testament and just these pictures of God that we have from the Old Testament and what do we do with that? I don't know what verse he goes to, but he talks about potentially there being another plan A option for God getting the Canaanites out of the land. It was something about like making the crops fail or pests or something like that to where they would they would need to migrate to another land. Um, and you go, yeah, why couldn't there be, why couldn't there have been something like that? where they just have to kind of leave and move on to another land and the Israelites can just kind of go in. Why did it have to be killing every last man, woman, and child? This kind of sheds a little bit more light on maybe a bigger story of what was going on there. Yeah, so I said earlier, to see some of this stuff, there's a reason we've missed it. We kind of have to do some of this breadcrumb chasing. So just track with me here for a little bit and uh, and we'll pick up a few more breadcrumbs. There's going to be a, a smattering of connections and linkages that, that we want to notice. So... Genesis fifteen thirteen. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years, as in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, that's to Canaan, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, there's been a lot of scholarly discussion and not so scholarly discussion on what the iniquity of the Amorites was and how to use this as a justification for the conquest and all, and all sorts of that. But let's just notice something here. So clearly, one of the major people groups listed as being the inhabitants of Canaan is the Amorites. And we don't talk about this much in the church or, or give attention to it, but the Amorites were actually one of the great world empires in early antiquity and uh, ruled, uh, had a massive territory essentially through through a large swath of the Middle East and were a massive, brutal empire, much like Babylon and Assyria later on. And, uh, and actually, it's really interesting, gets more interesting as we keep going through the biblical uh, story, but the Amorites were actually the, the people group that founded Babylon, which becomes the both metaphorical and sort of symbolic paradigm for the, the people and city that is both brutal and unjust and worshiping the, the wrong gods, worshiping Baal as an affront to Yahweh. So just notice here, it's the, it's the Amorites that are living in Canaan for large part. And by the time we got to the spies going out, in Joshua, it's the Amorites and a few of these other people groups who are uh, essentially relatives. But now look at Amos 2.9. It's later on one of the prophets, and it's talking about this event. And Yahweh says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. Well, that's interesting. So in the section we just read of the spies looking out into the land, one of the, the scary pieces of information they bring back is it seems like everybody there is giant. And now here we have two other passages that seem to be working together to say that, oh yeah, the Amorites, 
they were as tall as cedar trees and as big as oak trees, which seems to be a pretty obvious reference to some sort of great height. Now we'll look at another couple breadcrumbs in Joshua. There's this word called uh, the Anakim. It's just a Hebrew word that hasn't been translated, but transliterated. Joshua 11, 21 says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, remember that one, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Okay, so we just looked at two passages, one in Genesis preceding the conquest, and it references the Amorites. And then we have a passage afterward that's making a comparison once again to the Amorites being potentially giants. And now here we have Joshua and a a statement after the conquest that is essentially a kind of concluding summary statement of what happened. And that is that the main thing that happened here, the main important piece to note, this is what really theologically matters, is that Joshua cut off the Anakim from most places And there were none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, except for in these few places some remain. Now, let's just notice, again, this sounds a lot like the flood and the reference to the giants that were in the land. The flood comes, oh, and they were still in the land afterward. So here they are. There are these figures, the Anakim, who are in the land. Joshua comes to eradicate them. A lot of them are eradicated, but some are still there. So for a minute, just hold on to the Anakim and Gath specifically, where some of them are left living. And I'll flip again to another breadcrumb in Deuteronomy 3. Nate, do you ever remember any stories uh, in church or whatever growing up about Og? You know, honestly, I don't think I do. And that's actually kind of weird because, I mean, like I grew up in church. Like I think I slept at church like five times growing up. Like I... <laughs> And I don't remember Og. They never told me about Og. Tell me about Og. So there's a man named Og. And for some reason, the writer of Deuteronomy 3 thinks this guy Og is worth spending an entire long story on. Well, he didn't make it on the flannel graph. So <laughs> the flannel graph company doesn't think he's worth making a flannel graph of. That's because his name's Og. So... We'll read through this vignette, and it's going to be another example of uh, trying, trying to understand and see that to these writers telling the story of Israel's move into Canaan, what they considered to be the real ultimate meaning of this story, the real conquest, the real invasion, was actually not about people fighting other people to take their land. It was, it was telling this to us, to our ears, crazy mythological cosmic story about God going to war with these rival invading gods or semi-gods. So look at the story of Og in Deuteronomy 3. Makes this, this whole pause in the text to say that the Og, the king of Bashan, came out to battle. And so there's this big battle. And interestingly, they need a real strong encouragement from Yahweh The Lord said to me, Do not fear him, 
for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. Okay, so we'd already talked about how the Amorites were apparently considered to be giant figures as well, and were also the empire of the day. And apparently, the Israelites had successfully fought against the Amorites. And here comes this guy, Og, who apparently is going to be a similar threat. So we move down to verse 8, and we just don't have time to fill this in, but there's a whole bunch of references to other people groups, other nations and tribes, and places, places like the Valley of the Arnon uh, and Mount Hermon. And all of these places, uh, if we had time to get into it, we'd see are loaded with divine worldview uh, reference points, essentially. Mount Hermon was actually considered, and we, we talked earlier about the Book of Enoch, which tells the bigger story of these sons of God coming down and having sex with the daughters of men. Uh, the Book of Enoch tells that story in, in greater detail. And it's on Mount Hermon that was, uh, for a long, long, long time in many cultures, considered uh, one of the holy mountains of the gods. It was on Mount Hermon that those sons of God came down to invade humanity. And so it just so happens that right near that same mountain, where those giants were essentially created, there's this battle with Og. And then you go down to verse 11, and it says, For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? As in, it's still there. You can go see it. Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. Now, if what we're reading is a basically historical chronology of a people group and it's trying to account their history and their major victories and the kind of identity forming uh, events in their history, why does the author of Deuteronomy stop to point out that there's a really big iron bed in this town that you can go visit and th this guy, Og, this was his bed? Why, why did they stop and point that out? And even if we didn't have some other background info, I think we could just stop and say this seems to be making a very clear point. And the point is, this dude, Og, had a really huge bed. Not only was it iron, it was something like 13 feet long. The point of saying how big this dude's bed was is first, another way of saying this guy, Og, was a giant. And that, in turn, is a way of saying that the point of this battle was not just another reason for war between two people groups that couldn't get along. The point of this battle was Israel doing Yahweh's bidding to fight this sort of cosmic divine war against these invading beings. And we should also note these giants, they're called heroes. That's one of the ways that English translations word it. That word kind of has a, a positive sense in our language. They were atrocious. They were the kings. They were the warriors. They were the most brutal, feared beings in these lands. The monsters. <laughs> they, they were the monsters. And, uh, and so. Sorry if you were born after, what was that, 1997? I don't know. <laughs> so there's a reason that the biblical authors in all, in all these texts don't feel any need to apologize or give an excuse for the conquest of Canaan. And it's not because they're completely immoral, domineering, colonial people. 
it was well understood, and they assume that everyone in their audience that they're talking to knew that that not only were these these beings that they're up against essentially these semi-divine rebel invader rival rival god characters, but, but they were also the the worst moral monsters uh, of their time, and even more interesting, and and there are rabbit holes on rabbit holes to get in here now. There are actually several other other pieces of evidence uh, that archaeological finds have discovered, both in texts, religious texts of Israel's neighbors, and also in some basically uh, carvings, etchings, and paintings, that multiple other people groups around Israel had this same kind of myth- mythological belief in, in some reign of giants, essentially. There are even these pictures you can see on the internet of Egyptian warriors, and it's an Egyptian painting, so they're not meaning to make their Egyptian warriors look puny or anything, but it's like six or seven or eight Egyptian warriors all basically trying to to imprison or fight against these two giant figures. And literally the giants are on their knees and in the depiction their their heads are at the same height as these uh, these Egyptians. So multiple other cultures had some sort of conception for this, which is fascinating for one. But two, there's actually a text that we know of that uh, and some archaeological finds where we know that there was a temple to the god Marduk in the land of Canaan that was a near the base of Mount Hermon again, where these divine beings were said to have come down. And in this temple, there was a cultic bed where the essentially divine god and goddess were were supposed to have this sort of ritualistic, you know, sexual bedroom, essentially. And it's not a coincidence that this one random measurement of a bed and assertion that, hey, there's this bed over there in Rabbah, you can go look at it, is the exact same length as this cultic bed that was said to be essentially the bed of the divine god, who was one of these rival gods, in the same exact location, essentially the base camp of the revolt that God was trying to uh, essentially fight against. The point here in literary terms, in Jewish literary terms, it's maybe not the way we would make the point. The point here is is simply by listing this description of Og's bed, it explains so much about what this whole story is about. And it reiterates that this isn't a human human battle alone. Now, I don't want to eliminate entirely that there are some passages in here in the conquest stories that are troubling in the sense that, that men, women, and children, even animals were included in this. But we just need to stop to say that the logic of it, and there is a very clear logic of it, a theological purpose to this event, to telling the story of this event, was to invade the invaders, was to take back territory that the invading gods had taken from Yahweh. Yahweh was going to use Israel to begin undoing that fall, to begin the redemption work was going to use Israel to start taking back that territory. And at the, this point, Israel's not going cosmic. They're not supposed to go kill and eradicate every opposing force throughout the entire cosmos. They're taking back this piece of land that was essentially the base camp for the gods who had inserted themselves into humanity and stepped up as God's rivals to begin with. 
fiction There's enmity, there's fiction And your words are clear as day Okay, wow. Yeah, so I, I definitely didn't really pick up on the whole giant thing, Nephilim thing, uh, theme in the Bible. I guess the only giant I had really thought of was Goliath. So is he connected in with all this at all? Yeah, so check this out. So I said to pay attention to Goth. Remember we had read earlier in Joshua, he's summarizing the conquest that they had wiped out the Anakim from most everywhere, but only in Gaza, Goth, and Ashdod did some remain. So the conquest was sort of successful and sort of a failure. And it gets repeated again in Joshua 13, in verse 2, this is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Rakron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Akron, and those of the Avim. Okay, so connecting those dots, the regions of the Philistines... That's who's left, the Philistines, who, no surprise, is essentially the biggest thorn in Israel's side, and uh, these two people end up at war with one another. They're living in the same uh, land, essentially. And Goth, we just realized, is a Philistine territory. And so these Philistine territories are the places that our Anakim are living in. Turns out that Israel basically gets reamed for this, this failure in Judges 1 and 2, there's basically this, this chastising of Israel for failing to, to run all these people out. And again, we read that as these are just people, and Israel was supposed to eliminate a whole bunch of people. But it seems that at every turn, the main concern of the biblical authors is not the people, but the, the particular people who are these, called by different names, Anakim, uh, Rephaim, Nephilim, these semi-divine children or grandchildren of divine beings, these are the main problem. So some of them are left living in the land, and for a long time, essentially there's a sort of literary uh, dot, 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 and the point of much of uh, the time through the judges, before the time of David, the point is that Israel is experiencing much of the consequences of failing to eliminate this divine invasion from their territory, or the place where they are now living, at least. And there's a reason why David becomes the most celebrated king in the Old Testament and in, in Jewish culture, and that is because he comes along not surprisingly, uh, not coincidentally, the small one who, unlike Saul, Saul was tall, tall in stature, and God intentionally, to make a point, chooses little David to do what? To fight against the giant Goliath. Now, I'm a, a big fan of, uh, of Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> and love his, his books and all that, but safe to say, Malcolm Gladwell's point here on with his book on David and Goliath about this being an underdog story and Goliath might have been blind and all this. It's fascinating, it's interesting, and it's entirely missing the point 
that the biblical authors are trying to make. And he misses it in the same way, although a, a much more interesting and, and brilliant way than most of us miss it. But it's the same way and that we're simply reading these as the main characters in these stories are the human beings involved. And the main issue is one human being's bad or another human being's bad or these human beings are good and these bad human beings are affecting those good human beings. And that's simply not at all the story that's being told. So, you come to 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, or a hero, or warrior, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And of course, we all know the story from there. The point is, and the way Goliath is introduced, is to make it extra clear. He's a hero. He's a warrior. He's a man of renown. And he's huge. He's a giant. That Goliath, one of the Philistines, one of the remnants of those in Gath, is one of the last of the the semi-divine bloodline. And little David does what essentially the rest of the Israel leaders and armies had failed to do, which was to be brave enough to take on these semi-divine figures. And he does, and he wins. And it turns out Goliath wasn't the only one. Goliath was the first, but David would have to go on and kind of finish off the rest of the line. So look in First Chronicles 20, and uh, there are parallels in Second Samuel 21. Verse 4, it says, And after this there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer, then Sibachai the Hushatite struck down Shippai, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And the Philistines were subdued. And there was again war with the Philistines. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, struck him down. These were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. The point made crystal clear here is to say that David essentially finished the conquest hundreds of years later. And the conquest, what's, what's made clear in these passages, so these all just mention multiple phases of war with the Philistines. There arose war with the Philistines at Gezer. There arose war with the Philistines again. But what does each war mention? Does it mention men, women, children, animals, slaughtered, being dragged off, taken captives? No, it, it, it mentions each giant that was killed, including the one with six fingers and six toes on each hand and foot. The point is to eradicate these, these beings. The point was not genocide. Uh, but eradicating the semi-divine beings from the land, that is the point of the conquest. Now, there's all sorts of holes or concerns or troubles still in someone with, with a view like ours, or a distaste for violence, that uh, these texts still cause issues. What we can and, and should say is that the point of this literature is so far from what we talked about earlier. It's so far from the way that people have wanted to use it as essentially a justification for religious manifest destiny. Uh, 
that it's it's actually has nothing to do with that. It's it's mythological in its meaning. Okay, so that's that's really helpful, and I think it it does give a better um, framework through which to understand the conquest of Canaan, which is a really hot topic right now. But it's not all working out perfectly in my head. still feels like it feels like the United States needing to uh, get back at Japan after Pearl Harbor and so we dropped the bombs and we did what we needed to do yeah a bunch of uh, innocent men women and children civilians were killed in that but we did what we needed to do that's sort of what it feels like to me is God was Hey, hey, God was fighting this cosmic battle with these beings. Um, but at the end of the day, violence happened and a lot of people died. And it still just doesn't sit right with me. And it still gives me this bad picture of God, I guess. Yeah, and I totally get that. And that's where the conversations and that you and I have both experienced far too many times is the way I'm supposed to respond to you saying that is... But if, if God deemed that this was the best thing to do, then we're just supposed to trust that this was God's best plan, that this was the best possible scenario. And, and that's where I just go, no, I, I'm not comfortable saying that. I'm not comfortable making that assertion about God. I'm not comfortable even in doing that kind of rationale. So I'm, I'm not saying that this alleviates all of those troubles. I feel some of that myself. I don't know, you know, how accurate that picture is or isn't. The main case for me to say is, why are we even thinking about a conquest of Canaan? Because we read these books, because they're in the Bible. Okay, well then it should matter to us what these books are doing and what they're saying. And the kind of genre that a text is or or the goal or the the theological point that a a text is making uh, or trying to make has to determine how we read it and and what we do with it and so in one sense all i'm trying to say is that when we've get, gotten into those conversations that turns into one side is justifying god's right to be violent and another side is questioning whether they want to believe in that kind of god is simply to say, this isn't a story about violence from one group of people to another group of people. This is primarily, first and foremost, a story that is making the point about God engaging in some sort of theological battle. And the point of this story isn't to make any sort of political theology. It's not drawing a moral system of how to deal with other nations, how to claim new spaces. It certainly wasn't meant to be a foundation for Manifest Destiny in North America. And so I'm okay just saying 
that the issues that we're feeling, that issue of would it have been okay for God to decree that a whole bunch of innocent people get taken down by his own people, that right now what that feels to me like is a byproduct of the literature, and it's a literature that is making an entirely different point. That that issue that you and I both feel is an issue with the literature and not necessarily with God. Because that point is not something that the, the literature is trying to make. These texts, the, the conquest texts, are not trying to make the point that any, uh, any imperfect or immoral people group deserves or, or will have God sending some supposedly righteous religious group to go destroy them on their behalf. And in fact, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that's framing this event that we're talking about, this conquest event, this move into Canaan, that seems to me like it's, it's actually trying to intentionally prevent the kinds of views that we find horrible and to actually essentially make, make the point that you can't read these events that way. Look at Deuteronomy 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, those giants, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord promised you. This is the the command to go into the land. But do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. So it seems to me here that there's this, this prefacing warning essentially to Israel to prevent them from interpreting this event, which these are the people that were a part of this event. They are the characters in it from ever interpreting it in a way that would be used to, to justify any form of repetition of this event or to justify them thinking that it is their role or it is because somehow God favored them over these other people that it is their role to go in and take them out. Now, that's a, that is precisely how the American colonialists who came in and destroyed the native tribes here. That is precisely what they did. That is precisely how they viewed themselves. That was the the backbone of manifest destiny. It was a sense of righteousness. So not saying again this alleviates all of the trouble or all of the tensions, but it it does seem pretty clear that that the Bible is making statements about what these books are for, and it's trying to clarify what the main point of these stories are. So Nate, for you, how much difference does it make to kind of hold this view that, okay, is is actually primarily kind of a cosmic battle. It wasn't primarily about, you know, genocide or, or stealing a nation from a people group. 
what does that make a difference for you? Does it seem petty? Like what's the Yeah, I think it does make it better to an extent. So backstory, I've been reading a lot, and a lot for me is one book. Uh, I've been reading a lot of Brian Zond. Really love him. Love uh, his pastor in Missouri, and uh, and then some Greg Boyd, because they've both been writing about conquest of Canaan, but in the larger sense, violence in the Old Testament that seems to be coming from God. And what do we do with this this picture of God that we have in the Old Testament? All the stuff we talked about. And so it seems to me that in order to make this all better. I see, I see this in there, so I can't, I, I can't uh, unsee the the giants and and all this stuff, and that that was probably what the the story is saying was the reason for why they needed to eradicate this people group from the earth. But in order to make it better, it seems like there would need to be a combination of this story, but also some of where Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn go, which is to say that this is a primitive people who are learning who God is and what that means. And so we are seeing their journey in learning about that. And so they got some things wrong. They thought God was a certain way and he wasn't. They they saw things that were happening and would explain it a certain way. And in this case, they saw large, tall people and potentially went back and created uh, a story. Maybe it was passed down generation to generation, generation of these large people and the um, having sex with the gods, and that's how they got to be so much bigger than everyone else. And so it just seems like maybe the other uh, nations would have had similar stories like this to explain why they needed to eradicate uh, certain people from the earth, and their gods co-signed it as well. Yeah, I, I, this, this is where my brain kind of goes, and the questions I have. I, I would say it does make it better, because genocide wasn't the purpose for the biblical writers in this story, but it still seems like there's a lot of issues that continue to perpetuate this bad picture of God. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, it seems to me like it helps to see that the point isn't God being a jerk, but it seems like my God, God might still have been a jerk. Yeah. Like the point wasn't God was just this raging, tyrannical deity that is just bloodthirsty and, and wanted to you know kind of will-nilly eliminate a bunch of people. He actually, we touched on this, it's little Israel, small slave society, being called to go to war against the biggest empire of their day. And we'll touch on this a lot in future episodes. I think noticing that God is on the side of the little guy helps change our view when we encounter the violence and the war and that kind of stuff. It doesn't get rid of it. But to me, at least, it makes a big, a big difference to think of, you know, especially when you throw around terms like genocide, to think of, the little guys, the, the slaves, being given the, the okay, the green light, to go to war against the empire. And especially, as we just made the case, that this really was primarily about a, a kind of divine event. That's easier for me to swallow. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying we're off the hook there. It's easier for me to swallow than, for instance, if under David and Solomon, when Israel had become like a, a proper empire in their own right, or trying to be, if then you see God say, okay, now go take over Egypt or now invade you know, your neighbors. Because right, then I'm like, okay, so now God uh, is not just bloodthirsty. You know, God is essentially a Napoleon Bonaparte who's, who's just out to gain more land or whatever. Again, I think there are a lot of ways that we can gain some perspective. Part of the, the reason I want to do this 
is some of the people that I have learned the most from. They've actually poured out, I mean, there's uh, been podcasts and books and all that on the conquest in the last few years because it's been such a hot button issue. I mean, John Walton just released The Lost World of the Conquest of Canaan and uh, and Pete Enns has been doing a bunch of stuff on the conquest. And I'm just constantly surprised that in everybody's attempts, Joshua Butler, who's, who's someone you and I have read, everybody's attempts to make sense of it, and especially those who have a similar distaste for violence and are wanting to wanting to find, to see if there is a way that we can interpret this in a sense that God isn't just this genocidal maniac, that still none of those people have, have honed in on this theme throughout of the, of the Nephilim thing. And uh, to me, there's something here that at least kind of kicks the ball forward into a new conversation. Is this more like the humans and the hobbits driving out the orakai from the, from the world? That's deep. <laughs> Urakai. The Lord of the Rings is probably the only story in which I find myself wanting to, to justify war. It's the only one. And there's something about the story. There's something about the beings. There's something about the nature of it. It is the final battle against the source of great evil and, and the source of great light. It's the cosmic battle that makes me say, yeah, like, they were right to go to war. Like they were right to kill the orcs. They were right to, to fight, to be violent. And no, really, I can't think of another place. I mean, even with the, the wars in our own, you know, think of World War II, which seems like one of the most justified wars, if you can, if you can say that. I have not been able to, to get behind a, a just war Christianity in my head, I'm not opposed to those that are or those that have that have fought in those wars or anything. I just can't do it because it seems like at the end of the day, violence just perpetuates more violence. But there's something about the Lord of the Rings. There's something about the scope of it. There's something about the nature of the enemy not being just more people that seems at least emotionally to me to change that. And maybe that's why emotionally I I get excited to kind of see this this background stuff in here is I don't partly because I don't even really know what it means for God to destroy a semi divine giant being, but also I I don't feel the same sympathetic response <laughs> in my gut as I do when I just think about people, you know, other primitive tribes, other Middle Eastern cultures. Right. There's just something that, that changes that for me. All right. Well, this has been fun. Giants. And the gods that bore them. (laughs) (laughs) Zing. All right, everyone. Thanks for spending this time with us. We hope to see you next time. So be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. We do have a request for you. If you could take 30 seconds, open up iTunes and leave a rating and a review for the show, that would be excellent. This helps more people find the show and we really appreciate it. Also, we're ready to answer your questions on the show. To leave a question, just call 503-343-4788 and leave a message with your name, your city, and the question, and we'll try to answer that. Again, that's 503-343-4788. Until next time, this is Nate and Tim signing off. All the music on Almost Heretical is produced by Kale Haugen. KaleHaugen.bandcamp.com All right, well, we hope you found that interesting, our talk on giants and the gods who bore them. <laughs> so, <laughs> we hope you'll come back for future episodes. <laughs> I feel like I'm baking up to go see.